Support for KQED comes from Stanford Continuing Studies. With a wide range of on-campus and online courses in liberal arts and sciences, creative writing, and professional development, summer classes begin June 26th. Continuingstudies.stanford.edu. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Between mass shootings and constant divisive political rhetoric, it's been a stressful time for those following the news. As one of the nation's leading Buddhist teachers, Jack Kornfield has been helping people find the tools to cope with painful events for more than four decades. Even with the 10,000 joys and sorrows, with the losses and grief, continuing racism and warfare and struggles that we have as humanity, even to treat one another decently, it's possible for the heart to be happy. Coming up on Forum, Jack Cornfield, founder of Marin Spirit Rock Meditation Center, will join us to talk about his new book, No Time Like the Present, Finding Freedom, Love, and Joy Right Where You Are. It's all coming up after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Uncertain times are the perfect place to deepen the practice of awakening writes the longtime Buddhist teacher Jack Kornfield. Jack Kornfield's latest book is called No Time Like the Present, Finding Freedom, Love, and Joy Right Where You Are, and it offers advice on finding freedom from worry, anxiety, and want. The founder of Marin Spirit Rock Meditation Center, Jack Kornfield, joins us this hour to discuss his new book and share what he's learned as a longtime practitioner of Buddhism and mindfulness. And welcome back to Forum, Jack Kornfield. Thank you, Michael. Well, these are difficult times. I mean, you were listening to the last hour and, you know, in the wake of these two shootings, uh, both locally and in Alexandria, um, you know, a lot weighs on us, a lot weighs on people with the present uh, administration, uh, as we hear from listeners and so forth. These are the best times, from your perspective, to draw on compassion, inner courage, and the Dharma within? When I hear you use the best times, I think of Dickens. These are the best of times, the worst of times, because as we speak, there's this giant parade for the warriors and this great celebration, and the world is filled with both uh, unbearable beauty, so much uh, goodness, and an ocean of tears. And the last show of the um, tragedy and the shootings touches us, as do the tragedies of the world. Then the question is, how do we tend our own heart? How do we move through this human life, this human incarnation that has its measure of joys and sorrows, some of which are very, very deep? Well, I love the quote in your book from Martin Luther King, which I'd never seen before. Uh, Days of darkness, look up at the stars. Yes. I mean, that kind of says it. But you talk about dharma in tough times, and you say become a beacon of dharma. And, you know, this is sage and, and certainly instructive device, uh, not only for Buddhists, but for the rest of us. But uh, you're talking about really awakening, uh, deepening awakening to life itself. Well, one of the beautiful truths, and certainly a message in this book, but I think a message that's universal uh, when you look about, look at Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of Raman Island prison with so much magnanimity and uh, compassion and forgiveness and courage, um, the, he not only changed South Africa, but he changed the imagination of the world. You see that they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And where we are um, right now, whether it's personally or collectively, um, this becomes a place for us to really look at what spirit are we carrying and bringing through through this time. Are we letting the terror outward uh, terrorize our heart? Do we bring that inside? Or is there some way to step up with a kind of um, courage and steadiness and dignity? Let me just say one little thing, an image from Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, he said that when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. So we also have the opportunity to become that person in our family, our community, in the world to carry that. I can hear many people saying, that's not me. I can't have that kind of calm. I'm not Mandela. I'm not the calm person on the boat. I'm the person who's agitated and beyond control. 
And one of the beautiful things that modern neuroscience is showing is that um, every single person is born with a capacity to transform their heart and mind. Um, and it's never too late to start or to start over. So that um, even if you feel very anxious and overwhelmed, it's possible to sit for a minute or two or three, to take a few deep breaths, to remember the place that gives you the greatest strength um, uh, or refuge. It may be a memory of <clears throat> being with your beloved grandmother or it may be a memory of being in the high Sierras, something that begins to calm and steady your body and realize that you have within you this, the seed of the possibility of well-being. There's a lot of neuroscience in your book, Jack. Uh, I mean, you know, you're a trained psychologist, and so it's no uh, quantum jump to, for you to move to neuroscience. But, you know, I'm struck. I'm suddenly reading about uh, Rumi and being open to love, and I'm reading about limbic resonances. Uh, I mean, you've taken a lot of this in and used it in your practice? Well, one of the remarkable things in my in the mindfulness industry, I might say. That it has I'm, become an industry. Part of. More than a cottage. <clears throat> yeah. yeah is uh, that it, that there have been more than 5,000 studies and research papers in the last couple of decades on mindfulness and compassion training um, that show um, neuroplasticity, that what used to be decades ago the sense of a fixed nervous system is completely incorrect, um, and that each person has the capacity to learn how to regulate and balance um, both um, inner emotions and well-being, and that these literally change our brain and change our nervous system. So um, just as we have education in math and reading and, and uh, history, um, it's time in a certain way for our culture also to have an emotional component of our education. One uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff called us a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. Um, and we have all this outer technology that's really fantastic. In my, The phone in my pocket is the Great Library of Alexandria. Um, it's now time for humanity to match the outer development with the trainings and capacity um, to change our own hearts and minds. And the beautiful thing is that modern neuroscience is showing that this is possible. Talking with Jack Cornfield, longtime Buddhist teacher and author of a new book called No Time Like the Present. Uh, it's kind of a carpe diem book in some ways, isn't it? Yes, it is. And um, I mean, that's what we have. We've been given our life and and what do we do with it? And I love seeing the people who come on retreat to Spirit Rock as a, a center or, or those who will do online programs that I talk to. I have this very simple online program called Mindfulness Daily, 15 minutes a day, or Mindfulness Daily at work, 12 minutes a day uh, for 40 days of just learning how to quiet the mind and tend the heart and steady yourself. And at the end of a week retreat, I look at people we call it actually the, the, the meditation facelift. They look 10 years younger or 20 years younger. Their eyes are bright. Their, their body's more relaxed. And there's a capacity that we each have, even in three minutes or 10 minutes, uh, to slow down, to take some breaths, and to remember, to kind of listen to our body and heart and remember within us that there are also the seeds of well-being and dignity underneath all the many thoughts and anxiety and worries that, that are so common. And a lot about loving kindness, too. You've even got kind of a mantra here. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be safe. May you be well. May you be at ease and happy. Um, even in, in the best, I suppose, Judeo-Christian spirit and Buddhist spirit, saying maybe include the people you don't like or your enemies in this. Yes. I mean, when I do my own practice of compassion and loving kindness, I take everyone, including politicians and tyrants who I might disagree with, and I can wish for them, may you too be free from hatred. May you too be free from greed. May you too be free from confusion and ignorance. You know, may you too see the beauty of the world. I wish that for everyone. Where do those wishes go? Do you think? I mean, do they? <laughs> I don't mean I don't mean to be subversive in the, asking that question or anything, but you know, you're putting them out there in the universe, presumably. Uh... I, I I don't know. This is too mysterious, Michael. But let's since we're in Northern California, let's go woo woo for a moment. All right. I'm traveling in Asia. 
and the person I'm traveling with has uh, a vision in our meditation <clears throat> of her brother dying unexpectedly. And I say, you know, this is, uh, this is probably just the kind of things that come out of the unconscious and don't worry about it. And I was quite wrong. And 10 days later, we get a message that comes. Um, your brother has died. And it's the, it, he died the day that she saw it and in the way that she saw. And when I ask in a group, how many people have had this kind of experience? You know, 20% of the hands go up. Somehow, consciousness itself is a field that is interconnected. Um, and I can't tell you more than that. And science is just beginning to look at this. But we do know about limbic resonance. And, and uh, here in San Francisco, Elizabeth Blackburn and uh, uh, Alyssa Apple, who did a whole program she got, with them. She yeah. got the Nobel Prize for telomeres. Yeah. They're discovering that the telomeres in our cells, our cells are listening, are affected by the environment and the states of the people around us, even those that we don't actually meet with but are in the community around so the the truth of interdependence um, is not only so in the air we breathe. When you take a breath now, Michael, that air dusted Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa, but it also dusted the Fukushima nuclear reactor. We're breathing it all. Um, but in the same way, uh, we're interdependent in consciousness. And this isn't just a, a, a fiction, but now it turns out from science that we're seeing this to be true. You mentioned the death of a brother, and it prompts me uh, to ask uh, about a story you tell about your own brother, your twin brother, Irv, who uh, is passed. Um, and Dan Zoll, you know, my great senior editor, and I were talking about the fact that we both admire your storytelling, and there's a lot of storytelling in this book. Um, there's a story early on about your brother just being out in the cold <laughs> Winter, yeah, snow. we were we were kids. We were in Buffalo, big snowstorm, and icy. And uh, I don't know, eight, nine years old or something. We go out, and I as skinny as a rail and for freezing, and he was bigger and more robust. And we went out, and I said, "It's so cold, so cold." And he said, "It's not cold." And he took off his hat, and he said, "It's not cold." Took off his scarf, and then his jacket. Pretty soon, he'd stripped to the waist, and he was dancing around in the icy wind, saying, "You just think it's cold." And this was his spirit. He was really an adventurer. And he showed me something then that I've taken as a kind of inspiration in my life, many inspirations from my brother as an adventurer. But um, not only is it true in that way, but in the introduction to this book, I also write another little story about Barbara Widener, who founded Grandmothers for Peace. And she explains, I began to question the kind of world I'm leaving for my grandchildren. So I got a sign, a grandmother for peace, and stood on a street corner. Then I joined others kneeling as a human barrier at a munitions factory. I was taken to prison, strip searched, and thrown into a cell. Something great happened to me. I realized they couldn't do any more to me. I was free. And now Barbara and her organization, Grandmothers for Peace, works in dozens of countries around the world. Now, those are indeed inspiring stories. Uh, and could you tell the one about the... People are going to blanch and recoil when I use this word, but the wetback church? Of course I will. Um, and it comes from a friend and a really remarkable man who may have been on your show. Um, uh, the book is Tattoos on the Heart by Father Greg Boyle, one of my favorite books of the last decade or so. And he is both the um, founder of Homeboy Industries and works a lot with the gang kids in L.A. doing remarkable work, but he's also the priest for a number of the churches there. And he went one day um, to a church in the Barrios there um, to do a service and sprayed right across the front of it in graffiti was Wetback Church because it was a place that a lot of immigrants had, had, had used as refuge. And he went and he was terribly upset and he said, this is a, you know, a scurrilous act and... Um, slandering our church and what we're doing, and I'll get my homies from the gangs to clean this up. That's how they clean up graffiti now and, and so forth. And apologizing and worried about the safety of people in the church. And one woman, I think her name was Rosa Saldana, stood up, never spoken, waved her hands and said, no, 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 you will not erase that graffiti. And he said, I beg your pardon? And she said... If there are those among us 
who are despised, who are cast out, who are treated badly, the poor among us who are, who are mistreated. Um, and she paused. Then we should be proud to call ourselves the Wetback Church. And there's something about that story which is really the great heart of compassion that is also born in every human being, that when we see a child fall and hurt, even the most hardened criminal will go and reach and pick that kid up. Um, there's something in us that also resonates with the hearts of other beings, um, and it's a power for us to draw upon. There's another uh, wonderful story along those lines about Dr. Flaxted uh, and an obese homeless man. Yeah. Um, do you want me to read it? Sure. Uh, okay. Here it is. And again, it was it's local. Um, in this case, Jerry Flaxted describes his initial revulsion to a patient named Frank, an angry and obese homeless man who had diabetes, was unbathed, had gangrenous legs and open sores. When he didn't take his meds for his mental disorder, Frank would flail his arms and spew epithets and curses at all those around him. Frank was admitted repeatedly to the hospital, but for Dr. Flaxted, Frank was a patient who was hard to love. One day, Frank was brought into the hospital with congestive heart failure. The diagnosis was serious, and Dr. Flaxted tended him as best he could. Then 20 members of the down-home neighborhood church in whose shelter Frank sometimes slept, arrived. They brought flowers and homemade food, chanted and sang hymns to Frank, creating a chorus of care and communion. When Dr. Flaxted returned to Frank's room after tending to another patient on the ward, he saw that Frank was smiling, bathed in their love. The doctor realized that he had never really seen Frank at all. Uh, lovely story. Um, you know, in reading your book... Uh, this is kind of a strange analogy, but uh, I, I don't know if you know Paul McCartney's story about how he wrote the song um, "Let It Be." No, um, tell. Well, it, the, the lyric is, you know, "Let it be," uh, <laughs> over and over again. But Mother Mary comforts me, and it, it, he had a vision that his mother came to him. He was going through a lot of stress, a lot of Sturm und Drang, apparently, and his mother just said, "Let it be," and he took that internally, and the song came out of it, and so forth. There are many instances when I'm reading you and I'm thinking, that's what you're saying, isn't it? Let it be. Yeah, I wish I could sing that well. But <laughs> um, And what's true is that, you know, over the years I've worked with people in all kinds of circumstances, from the immigrants who uh, now, you know, maybe clean our meditation centers or work in, you know, different ways and helping us cook and things like that, who have, as one does often coming to this country, tremendous amount of stress and, and difficulty with uh, finding housing and money and... and um, uh, Just getting by. Getting by and all of those things, uh, you know. And then in one of our... So working with them and these practices and tools of learning how to find an inner resource in yourself to pause to find a sense of well-being, whether it's envisioning what was the most safe and beautiful place in your childhood, if you had any, or that you can even imagine, or the person that you've met um, who most gave you a sense of security in your life, and bringing them in and re realizing that you can re-regulate your body, um, breathing a bit more, and then in that, um, realizing you can also put down your anxiety. You don't have to keep carrying those thoughts. You can make a mental image of an altar and put Mother Mary or Kuan Yin or Buddha or Solomon, whoever you want, on that altar and say, all right, will you please carry this for me? I want to have some well-being. I want to tend my heart. So I work with them, but I also work with the CEO of uh, you know, the largest auto company in America, or one of them, um, who is also dealing with the pressures of um, the the whole transformation of the of the industry and how do I sleep knowing that I've got hundreds of thousands of people with jobs who depend on me um, and there's so much upheaval at whatever level we are um, as human beings um, it's important to tend the heart um, and their skills to do it. You believe in the heart. And you believe in the power of the heart, and it's particularly the power of love. And uh prompts me to ask you a question that 
Well, I'm hesitant to ask, but I'll ask nonetheless. Um, why trust the heart? I mean, particularly why trust the heart when it can be a very dark and tangled place and, you know, a place that's often when, when William Faulkner got the Nobel Prize for Literature, he said uh, great art comes of the heart against itself and often the heart is against itself. Mm. Or maybe you can talk about the heart of darkness in some well, senses. Conrad's heart of darkness. There you yeah, go. Right. As, um, uh, there is a heart of darkness. There is, and it's not the bottom. You know, that's that's not the very bottom of our humanity. There is born in every child an innocence um, and a beauty and an innocent spirit, and that can get corrupted, it can be, get traumatized, it can be violated in ways that then become um, mirrored in the violence that comes out of it. No question about that. And no question that there is both violence and, and aggression and meanness and racism and so forth. All those kind of um, impulses within us. Um, and some of that is the primitive brain, if you will, you know, born into us. You know, if you talk about the reptilian brain, we're in our little tribal group and we see other people. They're another tribe. They could kill us. They could take our food. They could rape the women and so forth. We better be careful. Um, and we have this also in psychology, the negativity bias in which um, we're much more aware of the dangers of the world because those are the things that, you know, could mean whether we survive or not. And the hundred good things that happen, we don't pay so much attention to. We, we worry about the one thing that could, that could be danger, dangerous to us. But we, we are more than our primitive brain. Aren't there though, we are well, we have so. a we have other capacities of of both reflection and understanding, and in the depth of the heart, um, there is a kind of compassion that's natural to us as human beings, and maybe even natural to us as beings. When you look at the studies of monkeys or even rats at the University of Chicago, there was a a, a study done with a a rat running freely in a cage and another one. Um, tightly squeezed in a painful way in a cage nearby. A bunch of chocolate chips were given to the, to the rat that could run freely and a, and a way to help get the other rat out. Eventually, the free rat not only helped release the other rat, but saved one of the chocolate chips for it. I now, remember that studies. I also remember thinking to myself, would, uh, could, could the rats be uh, in, in the larger macrocosm uh, uh, attributed to Kim Jong-un or ISIS beheaders or people like that? Well, I, I mean, I think it's important that you bring up the worst of humanity because that's what scares us, and it's also what causes tremendous human suffering. Then I think of my teacher, Mago Sananda, and I write about him in this book, um, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia. And after the Cambodian genocide holocaust, um, I went with him uh, to the refugee camps on the border of Cambodia and Thailand. Hold that thought, Jack, because I want to give out the phone number. We're coming up on Please. a break. We're talking to Jack Hornfield and uh, learning how to let go of anxiety and how to find freedom. His new book, in fact, is called No Time Like the Present, Finding Freedom. Join us in conversation. If you have questions or comments, we welcome your involvement in the program. Our toll-free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. Again, Call us now at 866-733-6786 or email us, forum at kqed.org, or go to our website, kqed.org slash forum. Support comes from the San Francisco Foundation, proud sponsor of Forum. The San Francisco Foundation works with its donors and community partners on a bold equity agenda for greater racial and economic inclusion for everyone in the Bay Area. History tells us that when community leaders, nonprofits, donors, residents, and business partners work together, all Bay Area residents benefit. Learn more at sff.org. Support also comes from TheaterWorks Silicon Valley. Hershey Felder has brought to life on stage Irving Berlin, Liszt, Chopin, and more. Now, TheaterWorks Silicon Valley presents Hershey Felder, Beethoven, a revealing look at this great composer featuring excerpts from the maestro's greatest works. This critically acclaimed work will be presented through July 9th at the Mountain View Center for the Performing Arts. Information at theaterworks.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. We're spending the hour with veteran teacher, psychologist, author Jack Cornfield, who has a new book out called No Time Like the Present, Finding Freedom, Joy, and 
excuse me, Freedom, Love, and Joy, right where you are. And his other books include A Path with Heart. And you're in the middle of a story, Jack, and I'm sorry. Uh, we had yeah, a little break. Yeah, so um, Gosananda, my friend and teacher, um, decided to open temples in these camps, Akeo, Kaui, Dung, that had hundreds of thousands of refugees. Um, and the Khmer Rouge underground there said, if anybody goes to this temple, um, when we get back to Cambodia, you'll be shot. So we had no idea if anyone would come. Um, but went through the camp, ringing a gong as one would for a holiday, and he built this, you know, simple platform with an altar and a and a tin roof in the middle of the s- square, and twenty five thousand people poured in, and he sat there, and nineteen all nineteen members of his family had been killed, his temple was burned, um, and uh, he looked out across the sea of tr- faces of trauma really, of people, a grandfather with only two remaining grandchildren or an auntie with one of her nieces and much of the rest gone. And I thought, what can he say to these people? And he put his hands together and he began to chant in Cambodian and in Sanskrit, Pali, um, one of the first verses of the Buddha's teachings. um, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he chanted it over and over again, and pretty soon people started weeping and chanting with him until 25,000 people were chanting, Hatred never ceases by hatred, by love alone is healed. He led them on peace walks back through the killing fields to their villages, chanting this. But what I saw was that he spoke a truth that was even bigger than the the field of suffering that sat with him. He said, this is eternal and it's true, and no matter what has happened to you, you can take this day and start anew. And I know as a teacher that we carry tremendous trauma, many people do, from both our own lives or the world around us and so forth. So I don't mean to minimize that in any way. And some part of a wise meditative practice means also finding the inner resources of compassion and release and letting go to move beyond that trauma and also finding ways to to have a kind of forgiveness that doesn't stop things. Forgiveness doesn't mean you say, I forgive and forget. You may say, I will do everything I can to prevent this harm from happening to me or another person. It simply means not carrying the the hatred in your heart. And Gosananda became nominated for the Nobel Prize a number of times, became a kind of beacon for hundreds of thousands of people to see that no matter what had happened to them, they could begin their life again. So I have a listener here who says one can be happy, joyful, and still suffer trump anxiety. Having Trump uh, is like having an emotionally abusive parent at home. What to do? Well, I I can't speak to, or I won't speak to the um, political views of your listeners because they'll be across the spectrum, I would hope. Yes, indeed. Um, And so I won't make assumptions about that. But I do find people coming in these last months with tremendous anxiety about the political situation. Whatever, wherever they are, things seem so very uncertain. Um, And so the, the, the question is, how to live in uncertain times and not let the uncertainty colonize your own heart. Um, There's a beautiful book put out last year. uh, I think it's called The Book of Joy, and it's a conversation between the Dalai Lama and uh, Bishop Archbishop Tutu. Yeah, it was done by Doug Abrams, who was on the forum program. And the basic premise of the book, they asked them, how can you who lived through apartheid and saw so many of your people killed and burned and and how can you who've lost you know the culture of tibet um was taken over by the chinese military and so many things destroyed how can you laugh and be happy and the dalai lama's response in some ways there's been so much taken from me uh you know they've taken our right to practice our religion they've taken our sacred texts they've taken our freedom in these ways why should i let them let them take my happiness um, so that for your listener, um, anxiety is part of the game of being human. And the point isn't to not have it. 
Um, we have that part of our brain, and you want to respect it and hold it with compassion. It's trying to protect you. Our fear is really a protective mechanism. So you can bow to it and say, thank you, and um, I'm okay for right now, and sort of put it on that inner altar or put it aside for a little bit and say, I will do the things that I can, both to tend my own life and family and community around, and I will also stand up for the things that really matter to me. Thomas Jefferson said that one person with courage is a majority. Don't think it's somebody out there. And I think it was um, maybe Lewis Mumford who said, a person of courage never needs weapons, but they may need bail. And so there's something uh, about once you quiet the mind and come back to yourself so you don't let yourself get taken over, whatever your political point of view is, by all the noise and the fear there, then you also reach out and mend the part of the world that you can. You stand up for what you care about and what matters. And that ennobles you. I'm going to go to as many calls as we can get here. And by the way, you can also join us by email forum at kqed.org or tweet us. Our Twitter handle is at KQED forum. I just wanted Jack's bringing in some quotes by Jefferson and others. Uh, there's a quote in this book uh, that I really liked uh, by E.B. White that I just wanted to uh, put out there for consumption uh, that I think listeners would uh, actually appreciate. Uh, he says, every morning I, I wake up and uh, I'm torn between um, – uh, the desire to save the world and the inclination to savor it. Um, let me go to call. Oh, before I go to calls, actually, I just want to mention one thing. Um, a number of years ago, I had the privilege of being not only with Jack Cornfield, but also Pima Chodron, another leading Buddhist teacher at an event. And um, we, this is sort of undergirding a lot of our conversation. Uh, the computer system broke down and people didn't know where they were supposed to sit. There had been a lot of tickets that had been purchased. 3,000 so, people. Yeah, there were, there were about 3,000 people there and people didn't know where they were supposed to sit. They, I bought this ticket and I want to be over here. Why am I over here? It was a lot of chaos. And, everything. and in the most calm way that is sort of identified both with Jack and Pima and the teaching that they do, they said, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to examine your own heart and realize in this kind of circumstance that you can learn a great deal and you can enlighten yourself. Just wanted to throw that out there with the E.B. White throw a quote, and let me get our callers. A.J., good morning. You're on the air. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Michael and um, Jack, for just being a light on a, on a beautiful day, but sometimes can look at it from a dark perspective, too. Um, I'm a caregiver for, I would say, a, a you know, 50-year-old person, partner, and um, he has had so many medical problems. I mean, it started with a stroke, and then it turned into a coma, then it turned into partial blindness, then, you know, we're finding out that there's brain atrophy and um, this, you know, economic hardship, foreclosures on a house, declaring bankruptcy, and how... Do you find light in your heart through crisis after crisis <laughs> and try to let other human beings out there know, like, these are all invisible disabilities, and you please, if you could just find compassion for every single human and their struggle, because I, I try to do it every day, but I feel like humanity keeps on hitting us upside the head with these undercurrents and huge waves that all you can do is just let go and, and swim against the current. But, you know, it, humanity keeps on, you know, like running, you know, with yellow lights and almost hitting them as he's crossing the street. Well, you're hitting you know? on a very uh, vexing and, and thorny and uh, challenging question. Let me hear what Jack Cornfield has to say, AJ. Thank you for that. So first of all, um, I listen to you. And I can hear how hard it is. And um, so there's a kind of resonance. This is, this is suffering. And it's multiple causes. Um, and uh, there isn't a simple solution because right now, at least, we live in a culture and society that doesn't give the resources to tend the most vulnerable and those who are, um, you know, hurting among us. So it's both your own suffering, which is very difficult, and it also is uh, the product of the way that we're caring for one another. In your, in your question was also some wisdom um, where you talk about uh, 
we can let things go. That's that's an important part. Um, that you know, it's you can see the society and and the things around you which are upsetting to you, together with mixing together with your personal situation, and it seems to make it worse. I hear one other element in AJ's call, and that is why can't people be more compassionate? Why can't they realize more what others go through and what others suffer? Um, I don't know the answer to that in a simple way, Michael. What I know is people are the way they are, but I know that we can be more compassionate. And it sounds like, in fact, you are quite compassionate, both as a caregiver um, and you're concerned about other in this, others in this situation. Um, I call people like A.J. heroes because they are. Yes, absolutely. And so for you, again, part of your, your task in whatever way it works for you is to carve out even micro times um, to come back to yourself, to realize that not only do you care – but also I can get through this. You have ancestors that go back for thousands of years who are survivors, and you are too. That's part of our makeup. There's a kind of courage and dignity that's born into you, um, and you're doing this. Um, and right now you're shouldering a great burden, and somehow it sounds like you're doing it with a good heart. So to avail yourself of whatever support you can, including supportive community, is absolutely critical and in some way, then you can become a model for a community that may have forgotten how to, how to do this. Good luck, A.J., and thank you for the call. I want to bring more callers on here. We'll go next to Josh. Josh, you're on forum. Hey, guys. Um, Jack, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all of your writing and all of your teachings. My uh, psychiatrist introduced me to you when I was going through uh, – struggles with a partner who is struggling with addiction and as she's worked through that this concept that you keep coming back to of being present and being compassionate really has resonated with me with her and we've tried to and continue to try to share this with my daughter who's turning four in a week um, and it's just very powerful and your kindness and your light is overwhelming um, so thank you so much for everything that you've done in your writing and in sharing these thoughts and uh, your teachings. I'm truly grateful and uh, humbled to be able to hear you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the call, Josh. That You hear a lot of that gratitude, uh, deservedly. Um, how does it make you feel inside when you hear it? Uh, I really hear it as, first of all, it feels good. I, I appreciate hearing it. Um, and I become more transparent to it in a way, which I think everybody who does this work is um, because really what serves people are the are the teachings and the practices and and the truth behind it. When Mahagosananda says hatred never ends by hatred, um, it's not my idea and not even his. It's something that's eternal. But you're a teacher and you're a psychologist. So I'm a, I'm a channel in some way. And you're a conduit. Yeah, a conduit exactly. Yeah. So in that way, I. I feel really honored to have the role. It's a, you know, I'm in a great. People are on their good behavior around me. You know, I'm in I'm in a good industry, um, and 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 I'm very very grateful for it. I also know that um, one of the things when people go by the tens of thousands to see the Dalai Lama, um, they go for the Tibetan teachings. Although often, you know, we don't understand parts of them because they're wildly complex and wonderful. Um, you know, and they go because he's a Nobel Prize winning, you know, figure. But I think more than anything, people go to hear him laugh. That someone who could carry the sufferings that he does of the Tibetan people and still be joyful. And I think that there's some way each of us contributes to the community that we're in um, by finding in ourselves some resource of well-being or developing it and carrying that lamp or that capacity where we are. And I'm glad you mentioned laughter, too, because uh, it's an important part of the way I see things uh, in terms of nurturing and uh, warding off uh, all of the difficulties that we deal with. But also, um, uh, there's a sense that um, laughter can release us from a lot of pain and a lot of anxiety. I mean, it's real, uh, and it does that. Let me bring in more calls. Uh, we go to Jim next. Jim, you're on. Good morning, Michael and Jack. Yeah, I agree with what I believe in name, name was Josh, and uh, really love the center in the North Bay that Jack started. 
Um, both of you referred to the mindfulness industry, and I've seen, I think, a predilection of scientific studies using mindfulness, and of course it's derived from Buddhism, I believe, and perhaps they're even looking at loving kindness and compassion. Um, remember, of course, the relaxation response, and uh, I believe it was derived from yogic meditation, and perhaps your close friend Ram Das could give me information on that. But um, um, what I want to know is, are there different scientific results among different types of meditation? I think I even uh, see uh, financial support uh, supporting Look, looking into Buddhist uh, technique. So, Jack, do you know of any um, scientific results that are different from different types of meditation? There are, um, and because there has been so much research, um, different types of meditation have been studied. Um, there's a new book that's coming out soon by Dan Goleman, who is the author of Emotional Intelligence, and Richie Davidson, who's one of the premier neuroscientists in the country, called Altered Traits that explores not just what states happen, but actually how, neurologically, how we change ourselves, And in it, there are reference studies of different mantra practice or Buddhist practice and so forth. What's true is that, um, without being oversimplistic, uh, these different practices all galvanize our capacity to um, direct our attention, to improve healthy states, to release unhealthy ones, and more than that, to get in touch with a sense of um, peacefulness, vastness, wisdom, perspective, become more the witness of experience rather than being thrown by every wave that comes to us. And the different techniques um, may operate a bit differently, but they head in that direction. You know, let me thank the caller. And since you mentioned Ramdas, uh the last time, actually, I had a conversation with Ramdas was soon after his stroke, and mm -hmm. he came in to do a program in spite of the fact that he was, by any standard, suffering, speaking much more slowly and so forth. But the attitude, and a lot of it has to do with attitude and temperament, the attitude was, I can learn from this, and I can learn how to be a different being in many ways than I was before. And I was just so struck by that. Uh, I mean, it was it was inspiring. Yes, um, I still teach with Ramdas. He's 85 now, and he's uh, on Maui. He doesn't travel because of the wheelchair and stroke and so forth. Um, and people come by the hundreds to his retreats because he carries a spirit of love that seems to be uh, override or surround all that's happened to him. And he says, oh, yeah, in different phases of my life, um, I was a Harvard professor, or I was a guru, or I was the just the, different avatars, right? Or you know, I was uh, I had my, my sports car, and I was a musician, cellist. He said, but that's not really who I am. Who I am is love, and that's where he lives. And it's kind of uh, it, it's more than inspiring; it's infectious um, to be around him. It's a beautiful thing. I read a tweet from a listener who says, how and why should someone stay awake and mindful when so many aren't? A beautiful question, and the answer is all the more important um, to be that one person on the boat, uh, to be someone when people who are lost in darkness and confusion, um, to have some vision of what's, what's possible um, is not only a gift for yourself, but it's a gift for those that you care about around you. Another listener, Riley, writes, I will feel anxiety and fear even over things that I am happy about, like graduating college and starting a new job. Does a lot of our anxiety stem from the unknown, the unfamiliar? And if so, does this anxiety we experience help us prepare for new things in our lives? So again, I think our fear and anxiety in some way is a mechanism to protect us. We worry about, we envision what the bad things are and so forth, and then we try to strategize ways to make sure that we're safe or that those around us are safe. And it's natural. The problem is when it takes us over. Um, and so, yeah, it's fine. Fear is there. And you can, with mindfulness and compassion, you can bow to it and say, oh, fear, I know you. Thank you for trying to protect me. Um, and I'm okay for now. And you can take those thoughts and put them aside somehow. Or you can focus on um, a few deeper breaths or find a place of steadiness and say, yes, this is natural. And I will pay attention to the 
things that I need to, but I don't have to foster that anxiety and keep repeating the thoughts and rev up the fear anxiety mechanism in my nervous system. It's not a a healthy way to live. Um, And I discover, and you too can discover, that there are alternatives. And again, something as simple as that program Mindfulness Daily or Mindfulness Daily at Work, what we've seen is in, in 12 minutes a day, people report, ah, anxiety diminished, physical pain, I'm able to be with it with less struggle, um, emotional regulation grows. It doesn't take that long, and the neuroscience backs it up, that even eight weeks of training, they see changes in, um, in brain structure that comes that, uh, that quickly. I remember, uh, I think it was Philip Roth once writing about needing a certain anxiety quotient every day. (laughs) Some people Uh. feel that they need to meet that anxiety quotient. Actually, uh, there's a lot in your book about anxiety and mindfulness, but also about love. And I I was very struck by a story. Many listeners probably know the story about Dante and and Beatrice, uh, Uh. but a story about the bridge in World War II, which is really quite compelling. Um, it is. It's a really beautiful story, and if 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 you like, I'll read it. Well, it's not only a story about love. Let me just frame it this way. But it's also a story about the response of people again to love yeah. and what they have their hearts open to. All the work of Dante, who was the 13th, 14th century master poet of the Divine Comedy and one of the greatest poets ever to exist, was inspired by a single moment of love. Um, as uh, Robert Johnson, Jungian analyst, described it, began when the young Dante was standing on the Ponte Vecchio, a graceful medieval bridge that crosses the Arno River in Florence. It was just before 1300, and Dante spotted a young woman named Beatrice, Beatrice, standing on the bridge. The sight of her ignited in him a vision that contained the whole of eternity, and this is falling in love. Dante didn't speak to her, but spoke to her later, met her, and not long after his epiphany, Beatrice died, carried off by the plague. Dante was stricken by the loss, but his work was inspired by her. She became his muse, the bridge to heaven itself. 650 years later, during World War II, the Americans were chasing the German army up the Italian peninsula, and the German army in retreat were blowing up everything in their wake, including bridges, to stop the American progress. But no one wanted to blow up the Ponte Vecchio because Beatrice had stood on it and Dante had written about her. So the leaders of the German army made radio contact with the Americans and in plain language said that they would leave the Ponte Vecchio intact if the Americans would promise not to use it. The promise held, the bridge was not blown up, and not one American soldier or piece of equipment went across it. The bridge was spared in a modern, ruthless war because Beatrice had stood on it and love had touched Dante. That's an amazing story. Bring in more of our callers. Dawn, you're on. Hi. um, I just wanted to first say thank you so much. This is a really interesting conversation. And um, I'm calling because I feel like I'm maybe a little bit of a wet blanket here. But um, a few years ago, I encountered somebody in my town who is, uh, incredibly toxic and used a number of different families for his own means. And uh, it led me to study sociopathy to try to understand what could make people do things like this. And from what I understand, approximately one in 25 people suffer from sociopathy, or at least up to some degree. And I was wondering if you could talk about that aspect of humanity, people who basically don't have empathy and therefore don't really have the best will. They're not damaged. They're just incapable. So, um, the sociopath numbers are, are are really startlingly and shockingly high. She, I they think, are. is bringing up an important point here. Let's hear Jack has to say. Jack, yeah. uh, I appreciate the question because it's not. Uh, it's critical for us also to see the suffering around us and the the causes of suffering, um, and the wise have to look at the causes as well. So whether it's because of profound early trauma, whether there's genetic causes for it, um, there are people who do not have empathy and can use others and can harm others in the way that you describe. So then the question is, what is our response as individuals and what is our response as a society? As individuals, we need to pay attention and to protect what we care about. 
Um, so to do what we can to protect ourselves, family, community from harm from someone who is worse than toxic, who's destructive. And that would go politically as well in a very large way. And then the second piece is not to let that take over us because you can get into a battle with it or you can get into great fear about it. And again, it kind of colonizes your inner life. Or you can say, I will see this clearly. I will do what I can to protect myself and others and name it or fight for laws if those are needed to protect people. But this is not going to take over my life. And instead, my life will be regulated by my own capacity for uh, dignity and compassion and care for myself and others. And let me thank the caller, uh, read some comments. Uh, uh, well, actually, before I go to any comments, Mary writes, uh, does Jack Cornfield have any recommendations for helping children with these teachings? Any books or Buddhist programs or classes? There, there are many beautiful books on mindfulness for children. Susan Kaiser Greenland has one, I think, called The Mindful Child. Spirit Rock has a family program, as does Green Gulch and Zen Center and so forth. Um, but there's a there's 20 good books that have been been written in this way, and I'd encourage you just to to uh, look for them. And again, uh, just to encourage those of you interested in reading Jack's present book, uh, it's called No Time Like the Present: Finding Freedom, Love, and Joy, right where you are. Other books include A Path with Heart, and what was the other book that we actually talked about here? After the laundry, the after, after the, the ecstasy, ecstasy, the laundry, the laundry. That's yeah. right. You know, Michael, there's one little quote in here that I, I also want to remind readers of that I got from Scientific American, so it's probably not an artifact of the internet. And it's Albert Einstein, where he says, um, "If you can drive safely while kissing a girl." You're simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. <laughs> and there's something in our wildly multitasking world and technological world in which we actually need to learn to stop and give attention to what we care about. And this is one of the great gifts that um, these teachings in this book and, and our human capacity can offer. And let me also say, since you mentioned Einstein, uh, I use this quote in my book, Spiritual Envy, about always question and say transformation begins with questioning. Uh, let's hear it. Pete writes for emotional education. It also happens to be a solution to the gun problem and a myriad of others. And Noel writes, we really need this today. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners. And thanks, of course, to Jack Cornfield. Always good to have you with us. Thank you, Michael. Forms produced by Judy Campbell, Irene Noguchi, Tina Larberg, Jeremy Siegel, Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer today is Jim Bennett, engagement producer Amanda Supai. We get online support from Amanda Font. We want to give special thank you to our interns, Devin Holt and Stephanie Roberts, who are leaving us this week and have been a wonderful addition to our team. Managing editor is Ethan Lindsay, executive producer Holly Kernan. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.